Welcome to the Sacred Ancestry Podcast, a show about discovering the true human potential. Let's dive deep into physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual health. I'm your host, Thomas Worm. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show today. I'm so excited to have Blaine, one of my good friends and fellow coaches. And we met in a business program, uh, gosh, almost a year ago or two years ago. I can't remember. Life's been so crazy, right? And I'm so excited to have Blaine here because he is a master of mindset, golf. Um, but really, he teaches people how to golf with their mind. And it's so interesting. So Lynn, can you introduce yourself and you know let people know how you got here and, and what you're doing now? We'll go from there. Yeah, thank you so much, Thomas. I'm so pumped to be here. You know, I love everything that you do and how you're able to help people kind of break through the their self-limiting beliefs and, and really raise the entire potential on what they're capable of doing. And, you know, you and I, we relate so well because we more or less you know, even though we're in different parts of the world, working with different kinds of people, we do very much similar things. And so kind of my whole mission is helping people remove those limitations, preventing them from being the best version of themselves. And I just happen to do it through this game that we call golf. Right. And it's, uh, you know, I like to think that golf is the game of life and it teaches us so many lessons about how to be better people and how to really be the best versions of ourselves. And it's a game that you can't win. You'll, you'll never be perfect. It's a game of who can miss the best. It's a game of constant failure with these little just surprises along the way. And I think if you can learn how to overcome, you know, adversity on the golf course, you will also become a better just person in general and vice versa. If you become a better person, you'll become a better golfer. So I got started in the golf world very young. My dad got me started playing when I was just four years old, really fell in love with the game at a young age. And as I was growing up, I said, you know what, this is something that I want to do. I had a really good coach when I was growing up and I wanted to be a coach as well. And so at the time, you know, being a golf coach meant let's work on your swing. Let's work on the technique. And so, of course, that's the route that I went down. I went through a four and a half year professional golf management program at Coastal Carolina University in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, graduated and became a class A PGA pro and got my first job outside uh, in the real world. And I was teaching full time in parallel uh, I was also a certified CrossFit coach and a mobility specialist because a little bit of background is about the age of 15, I started getting some really bad back pain and I thought that it was just part of, you know, golf, golf and back pain, they go together, but I was introduced to mobility, mobility improved my back pain. And so I kind of went deep into the fitness and wellness route. And so what started to happen was as I was teaching my golfers, uh, at the same time, I was I was coaching in the CrossFit realm and I was fortunate to work with with almost a dozen different uh, CrossFit Games athletes over the years, a lot of amazing athletes. And my job was to build mobility programs so that they could perform better without getting hurt. And so I started inviting my golfers to come to those mobility programs and they started playing better golf. Their back pain was going away. They were hitting the ball farther. Their scores were coming down. And so for a very long time, that was my bread and butter was helping golfers with their physical development with their wellness side of things and then what started to happen was 
even though I could see improvement in these golfers, even though they could see improvement in their game, they wouldn't always do the work. And that's something I think as coaches we run into all the time is, you know, your program works, the results are there, but people aren't doing it. And that's what led me down the mindset route of how do I deliver information in such a way that people are excited to do that work? How can they, you know, wake up each morning and say, look, I have to get uncomfortable for a little bit because on the other side of that is growth. And so I started implementing things like visualization and breath work practice and meditation and journaling and all the mindset things to lay a better foundation. Because as you know, you know, just regardless of if you're a golfer, if you're a wildland firefighter, if you're an accountant, if you're a plumber, whatever it is, you're getting stressed out in your day-to-day life. And at the root of it all, is look, I'm a person, I'm a human, I'm dealing with these things that everybody else is, let's take care of those first. Kind of like Maslow's hierarchy of self-actualization, we need the foundation of safety first. And so what started to happen is, is I found that players who were willing and open and vulnerable to expand their beliefs and their limiting thoughts, they'd look at something from a, a new light and say, that's holding me back let's overcome it. And then boom, all of a sudden they'd go out and play and everything's falling into place. Their mind is in a better place. And then with what we're doing on the physical side, their mobility is better. They have better motor control. They learn how to navigate the course and strategize when they're out there, missing better places. And all of a sudden without air quotes, changing their swing, without changing their swing, they would transform their game. And that's one of those things that most people, they hear me make claims of like, hey, I'll help you drop six strokes in six weeks without changing your swing. And they're like, that's a bunch of crap. That's not possible. This, that and the other until they get inside my community and they realize, wait a second, now I get it. And so that's kind of a little bit of a, you know, a pretext of of what I do here. That's so amazing, Blaine. And I think for for the people watching and, and watching the recording, it's like, I love how you entered that with look, the golf realm is full of failures. You're never going to be perfect. You're never going to get it right. But when you overcome that, that's exactly the wildland fire environment. I mean, everything we do, we'll put in a line for three or four days to get burned over, right? It's just like stroking out on that par three, right? It's just like, oh my God, it's so frustrating. But if you actually take the, the mental tools that you're giving people, you can overcome that and create opportunity. And I love exactly what you're doing. And and the mobility stuff is just, oh my gosh, we are so tight. One, from the stress. Two, from, you know, we have the same pack on, we have the same tool. You know, most people are doing chainsaw stuff for the same crew all summer long, the same thing. And and what I want to kind of like paint the picture here in the way I see what you're doing is that you're, you can teach wildland firefighters this exact same thing. It's just it goes from a, a golf club to a chainsaw or a Pulaski or a briefing. Like it's really the same exact thing. It's just like, I want to ask you like your golfers, it's really just an extension of their body. Like that golf club is just extension of their body. Right. A hundred percent. I think you hit the nail on the head And most people from my experience being a coach in the golf world specifically for almost 12 years now is, and it's no fault of the player. 
but there's a lot of you know marketing and a lot that we see on TV and that we hear on the internet about swinging the club and hitting the ball. And even things as small as the language that we use is super important because depending on how you look at it, you're not swinging the club. You're moving your body and the club is an extension of you. You're not hitting the ball. You're swinging through the ball and the ball is getting in the way through impact. And just those little tweaks of understanding how to visualize your shot is profound. I can't tell you how many times I'll be in a lesson with somebody and have them start hitting balls with their eyes closed. And they just rip the ball down the middle. Wow. It goes high, it goes far, it goes straight. And almost, I'd say comfortably, 80, 85% of the time, after doing it like two or three times in a row, they'll look at me and they'll say, why don't I just always play with my eyes closed? <laughs> and we laugh about it. But I tell them, I'm like, look, you don't need to see to hit the ball. You need to see to find the ball after you've hit it. And when we can separate that, a lot of powerful things happen. We're not hitting anything. We're setting ourselves up for success the best way we can based on the situation that's in front of us. We're taking all these factors into consideration and we're going into it with the mindset of, look, kind of like a scientist. Here's my hypothesis. This is what I think is going to happen. I'm going to run the experiment the best way I can with the tools that I have. And then regardless of what happens, I'm going to learn from it. Either everything went well, let's do that again. Now we have a formula for success or something went wrong. What can I tweak for the next time? And as long as you have that mindset of there is no such thing as failure, only opportunity to learn from every single shot, then you will get better with every single swing you make. But at the same time, if you don't have that mindset, then every single swing you make is an opportunity to make your game worse because now you're developing bad habits. And the thing with golf is, you know, three wrongs don't make a right, but three lefts do. And in <laughs> golf, you can do enough things wrong that you get a result that on the surface is like, that's it. Yes, I found it. But as soon as you change clubs or you change environments going from the range to the course, it doesn't apply because so many people are focused on the result rather than the process that leads to the result. Wow, that's so amazing. I really see this coming into like cutting trees because it's the same thing. You're you're right there. You're teed up at the tree. You've got the process. You're getting ready to swing your chainsaw into the tree. And it's like all these things that we're talking about, you know, you've got to do the breath work. You've got to do the visualization and and then execute. And I think it's just the same process. It's it's amazing how different these worlds are, but it's it's really the same thing. And and you know, for my clients, I do the same thing. I teach them you know, some NLP anchors to calm their physiology. We do the breath work, we do the visualizations, and then their tree cutting as a wildland firefighter goes, I mean, exponentially better. And um, I'm curious on like this whole, I guess where I got this stuff was like psycho-cybernetics. And, and uh, my first coach was actually Matt Belair from Zen Athlete. And he, you know, he taught professional snowboarders. He actually taught uh, Travis Rice to do his, he did the first, front flip on a motorcycle without ever doing like first try and he did that visualizing and it's just so insane how well this stuff works and i'm curious on like your your ideas on visualization and what's the process for your golfers from like they're walking up to the ball to like hitting the ball like what's that process like 
A hundred percent. What a great question. And I think at least in the golf world, and this, again, this applies to any area, right? Because the foundation that we're talking about that you and I are talking about is just the basic, you know, being a human, right? And then we're layering specifics on top, but the broader that base is, the more general it is, we all need it, right? So the principles are going to be the same and overlap, but at least the way that I teach it in the golf world is, you know, so many people think that just hitting the ball, that's a single action, but really it's the combination of, of different phases. We have before, during, and after. What do you do before the shot? What do you do during the shot? And what do you do after the shot? And each one has specific things that we want to look for. And I'm a big believer that the better information that we have, the better decision that we can make. So before the shot, and this is a this is a very timely conversation when we're filming this it's november 12th it's the first day of the masters 2020 yeah it's a, a super exciting day in the golf world but what if we if any of us watch golf on tv one of the things that we see is the player and the caddy have a conversation before the shot they're standing over the ball and they're typically asking some form of five questions how far what's in between what are the conditions of the lie where do you want to land it what club do you want to use so let's take the first one. How far? How far is it to the flag? How far is it to carry the water? How far to the front of the green, the back of the green? How far to lay up short of the creek? Anything distance related, we need those metrics. Right. Number two is what's in between. What does the ball have to physically navigate through, around, above, or below to get where it's trying to go? Is the green elevated from where you're standing? Is there wind in your face? Right. There's all these things that your ball has to navigate through. Temperature makes a big difference. You know, it, we can go on and on. What are the conditions of the lie? Meaning, how is the ball sitting on the ground? Is it sitting up? Is it sitting down? Is it on grass? Is it on sand? Is it in the rough? Are you on the side of a hill? Because those all determine what the ball will do when you hit it and how cleanly you can make contact. And as you start to take all these in, you begin to ask, well, where do I want to land the ball so that by the time it finishes moving, ends up near the hole or in the best place possible for your next shot? And which club is going to make that happen? And so all these things are happening before you even choose the club or pull it out of your bag. Now, it becomes intuitive. It gets to the point where for some players, as you're walking up to the ball, you're already calculating all these things. And you know, by the time you get there, some people, they need more time to make a conscious effort. But that's what we're doing beforehand. That's all of our thinking. That's all of our analysis. That's all of our data gathering. But that is absolutely not what we want to have going through our mind when we're standing over the ball, getting ready to swing. That's what we do before. So the second phase is during the shot, when you're actually hitting it. And when you're actually hitting the ball, you don't want to be thinking at all. You want to be feeling. And this is a really important distinction. And there's a special bridge between the two that we'll get into in a minute. You have all your information. You know what you want the ball to do, which club you're going to use and everything like that. But then when it comes time to actually execute it, you're simply trying to, what we call in, in the golf industry, play to a memory. Okay, because golf, you're not looking at the hole when you hit. You're taking it all in and then you're playing to a memory in your mind. So you need to feel it. You need to be locked on to this intuitive sense of feel. People visualize feel different ways. Some people see lines in the air. Some people feel sensations in their hands or in their body. Everybody's a little bit different, but you're basically trying to lock on to a feel. Now, once you've actually swung in accordance to that feel, now we have the after. 
after you hit the shot because it's not over yet. Most people hit the shot and they're done. They're already on to the next one. But after the shot, we have to ask, one, did I commit to my routine or not? And two, did the result come out the way I wanted it to or not? Because this is how we understand if it was a good shot or not. Because I tell players all the time, just because it wasn't the shot you were expecting doesn't mean it was a bad shot. You may very well need that shot under different circumstances at a different time. So don't discount it. If you have a 150-yard shot that you hit perfectly but it moved to the right, it's not bad. You were just trying to hit it straight. But there's going to be a time, I promise you, where you need that shot where it goes to the right. So remember that because that's a really important tool for later. Now, where I think you and I are going to have a lot of fun is in the bridging of the gap between thinking and doing, okay, before the shot and the actual shot itself. So before the shot, you're taking in all this information, taking the data, you're figuring out the shot you need to hit. And that's when we begin the visualization. You want to see or feel it in whichever way you can, and then take practice swings to physically feel what you're visually you're, you're mentally visualizing, okay? However, to switch from left brain logical analysis into right brain intuitive feel is not easy if you're not trained to do so. And so people ask all the time, well, how do I get from thinking to feeling? And the answer is, that's what you work on off of the golf course. That's where breath work, that's where meditation, that's where visualization comes into play because you need the ability, you need the tools to take all this stuff and then take it and download it into your subconscious and then act on that visualization. So I'll do different kinds of breath work techniques, different kinds of visualization, meditation, journaling. I mean, the list goes on and on so that people can really go through with this. Now, I know just the other day, you did a whole interview and in, in episode on tapping in, in the form of pain relief. I use tapping for visualization. Okay, right. now my form of tapping is the idea of, look, in golf, because every shot is a miss to some degree or another, we can't be thinking, don't hit it in the bunker, don't hit it in the trees, don't hit it in the water, don't hit it thin, don't hit it fat, because our very primitive brain, it doesn't understand language. It doesn't know that Thomas is saying, don't go in the water. It just knows you're thinking about going in the water, so that must be where you need to go. So I'll use a tapping technique to override that, to say, look, rather than thinking about what we don't want to happen, let's put a spin on it to say, what do we want to happen? And then we can literally tap into it. Now, the way that I teach tapping is while you are visualizing the shot, you're going to tap your feet or your toes inside your shoes back and forth, right foot, left foot, right foot, left foot. And you're just slowly tapping your toes up and down inside your shoes. Nobody even knows that's happening, but it overrides the don't and helps you focus in on the do. And then when you're locked in on what you do want to happen, now you have a feel that you can commit to. And once you have a feel you can commit to, you can take the shot because you're committed to it. If you're not committed to it, don't swing. Jack Nicholas, one of the greatest golfers of all time, he was notoriously slow on the putting green. And people hated playing with him because of how slow he was. But he said, look, I visualize the ball rolling backwards out of the cup, taking the break of the green, leaving my putter face, and I feel the sensation in my hands. And until that visualization is complete, I will not putt. But when it is complete, I usually make it because I've never missed a putt in my mind. 
Yeah. So he won't execute until he's ready. And this is what I encourage anybody who's listening and watching to do is if you ever stand over the ball, and this is the simplest thing you can take away right now. If you're standing over the ball and you have any kind of sliver of hesitation or doubt, back off the ball and start over. It's not worth going for it. You're not going to hit a good shot. It's just not going to happen. Take a step off. Take a breath. Okay. Let's refocus and then commit. Because if you follow through with that process and you're committed to one specific shot, then you can know, did it happen or not? If it did, celebrate it. We're going to take that positive emotion and put it into uh, what I call into our mental library because we can be playing around a golf and we can pull a book off the shelf in our mental library and say, oh, my God, last time I played this hole, I hit a great nine iron to three feet. Let me think about that. Yeah. That's a positive emotion. I'm more likely to do that shot again because I've already done it than any other shot. And I teach techniques about how to do that and how to override some kind of like PTSD from certain holes, certain players, you know, they get to a hole and they say, look, every time I hit it into the trees on the right, well, guess where your ball is going? It's going to the trees on the right. So we have to override that. And so there's a whole process, but, but that's basically the outline of how we do it. That's so amazing, Blaine. And, and just for all the firefighters, you know, that are listening, I see this exactly seriously like cutting trees because you're, the strategy is seriously the same. You're walking up to a tree, you're gathering all that criteria of like it's lean, where's it going, what are the hazards, where's the snags, where's the wind in your face, you know what I mean? All those things, when you're walking up to a ball, just imagine you're walking up to a tree. It's, this is a really big metaphor for everybody listening. And and just like you're at the base of the tree, you know, you're searching for that club. Which cut am I going to use? Am I going to do a double face cut? Am I going to do a boring back cut? Like what? how am I going to get this tree on the ground? And like you're saying, visualizing how is that lay of the ball going to go? Like, where's this tree going to go? I just, I love this as a metaphor for, for cutting trees. It is so powerful. And in the way that um, this whole strategy that you have, this whole process that you give your players, it's so beautiful. And, and I, you know, I've never thought about that way of going from thinking to feeling because I do it so naturally. And I think that's a good point that it's hard for a lot of people to, go from that criteria searching logical mind to like, let's actually tap into our gut and our heart and kind of use our intuition more with that, that feeling. And, and to me, I think, you know, I think you would agree with this too, like golf or chainsaws, it's really like a samurai. You're just, that thing is just extending of your energy of your body. And it's like, wow, man, this is so cool to like, you're, you've mastered golf. Like I can't imagine like your, your players are probably just increasing their swings are decreasing their swing swings by a by a lot just by this stuff and and the mindset the mind is key to all of it and the visualizations and it's such a key word that you said of like your mind is going to practice perfectly every single time and it should, uh, it, should. It, should. it should right <laughs> it might be some work to do if it doesn't and um and the other thing too is that the uh the, the way oh the way that like focusing on what you want, you know? And I think there's so much similarity of like, you're standing at the ball, you're standing at the base of the tree of like, oh man, if this doesn't go well, you know, unfortunately trees are really deadly. So we have to be on point um, where the golf is, is more deadly to your ego, I would say, right? That's a great way of putting it. Absolutely. Cause you know, it's the very fortunate thing about golf is it's not a life or death thing. However, don't you dare try telling that to a golfer when they're in the middle of a round because they don't know yeah. the difference. It feels the same. 
right? It feels like, especially your point with the ego, if you're playing with new people on a new course, right? There is this massive, overwhelming feeling that I'd say the majority of golfers deal with where there's so much pressure that they put on themselves to not hit a bad shot that they end up hitting a bad shot and boom, their ego is down and I'm a horrible person and what am I doing? I hate my life and this stuff. It can very, very easily get you to that point unless you have the tools to know how to snap out of it and say, okay, okay, look, no, I'm just out here playing a game. It's okay. My identity is not related to my ability to play. Yeah, that's that's so huge. And I think the way you talked about um, analyzing the shot afterwards, that's something we do as Sawyers every single time. We're at the stump, like where did my cuts go? Where's my stump shot? Where's the holding wood? You know, where, how did everything execute actually in real time? And and then we talk about it and usually we get the, you know, everybody talk about it together. And, and um, so I'm curious, are you out there on the field, like playing games with these people? Like, are you playing or are you just coaching them through the whole process? So it depends. I do both. Uh, so my academy, the Tour Shot Golf Academy, is, is is a remote learning golf academy, just like everything, you know, any top academy in the country. We just we don't necessarily do hands on. Now, I do take on private clients and we do go out of the course. Uh, I'll come to your home. I'll travel to you. That is something that I do. But the core part of my program is in a, a community based online where because we're not focused so much on technique, because I'm a big believer that everybody already has the technique. They just need to get out of their own way. Most people have bad technique because they have poor mobility. They're not taking care of their body. They're not taking care of their minds. They're really just trying to make the best of what they have to work with. But what we do is, I'll give you a great analogy. I like to think that playing golf is like racing a car. Okay. Now, what's going to have a better chance of winning that race? An old diesel pickup truck? or a Ferrari. Right, definitely a Ferrari. Ferrari. So most people, they know how to drive the truck, but they're trying to drive that truck like a Ferrari and it's just not gonna happen. So bit by bit, component by component, we turn that truck into a performance machine. We give you bigger brakes and a bigger engine. We change out the tires. We tune up the suspension and give you an alignment. And all of a sudden, your driving improves because the vehicle you're driving improves. And the whole process along the way, when you're feeling better physically and mentally, of course you're going to play better. You're gonna make better decisions. You're gonna be less of an emotional roller coaster when you're out there. You're going to really perform at the level that you see in your mind. You know, I'm also, you know, by trade, and I shouldn't say by trade because I was self-taught, but I'm a musician as well. I've been in bands uh, growing up basically my whole life. And if you listen to great musicians, they say, look, the purpose of learning your chords and scales is simply to allow what's in your head to come out. So there's so many people like in the music world where they hear these beautiful songs in their head, but they just don't know how to make it. Right. They appreciate music. They understand it, but they don't have the skill to let that sound come out. Well, in the golf world, we might understand how to play. We might understand the game, but we don't have the skill. We don't have the range of motion. We don't have the ability to produce speed without injury. We don't, you know, this, that, and the other. And so we're just bit by bit, component by component, improving your overall performance. And we're doing so through the guidance of having a coach 
and the support of a community and the accountability that comes from all of that. And so now the old model of, hey, let me go see Blaine for an hour once a week or once a month and in between I'm on my own, it doesn't work. If you come inside my community, we're working together basically every day. You ask me a question, I'm gonna give you an answer. If it's something that I hear coming from a lot of people inside the community, I'm gonna make you a killer training that's gonna help everybody. And so we're all in this and we're all learning together because I'm a big believer that the skills you need to play golf don't change as you get better. Only your competency within those skills changes. Everybody needs to have proficiency with their full swing, their short game, their putting. Everybody needs to have range of motion and good motor control. It's just the people who are playing at a higher level have higher standards that they need to meet. That's it. But we're all on the journey together. So you can take somebody who's just starting and you can take somebody who's trying to make it on tour and they can relate because they're working on the same things. Yeah, absolutely. And and I'm curious, so a big piece of this group lane is is peak performance. And and yep. I'm curious on on your thoughts on peak performance. And for me, it's like a flow state. It's that second when you know you're cutting that tree or you're hiking, and it's like there's it's almost like your body has disappeared and you're in the moment, right? There's no thought, there's no feelings, there's no nothing. It's just yes. you and the task. And to me, that's like that's not sustainable for a super long time. So we're gonna be at peak performance in the most critical point. And we're going to get back out of it. We're going to go back to peak performance when we need it, right? And and bringing this into the fire line is is critical. I mean, I think as a Sawyer for the last 14 years, it's like when I'm doing that double face cut, it's it's like I'm in I'm in peak performance. I'm in flow state. I've done everything we've talked about, and now I'm I'm executing that at peak performance. Like, tell me more about that. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head here. Where you know, even though golf is a game that could take three to five hours to play you're really only spending a few minutes actually hitting the ball, right? Most of the time is the time spent in between shots. And this is where a lot of players struggle is one, they struggle to get into the flow state when they need it. And two, they struggle to get out of it to relax in between shots. And this is amplified when we go into a competitive scenario. So the first thing that we want to do is really learn you know, outside of like a proper warm up is the pre shot routine that you and I just talked about a little bit ago. That's the foundation, that's the basis. It's like training a muscle. It's just every single shot, every single time, go through your routine because it frees up space to make better decisions. Because, you know, this whole idea of willpower is fleeting, it's, it's not a real thing. We, we, the, I like to think that structure sets us free. When you do the same thing every single time, you can make little micro changes and it doesn't take away from your ability to make powerful decisions. So one of the things that I like to do is I teach my players about breath work because breath work is a great opportunity in 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes to really force yourself into a peak performance state and understand what it feels like and train that muscle so that you can more easily get there from shot to shot. Because anybody who's done an intensive breathwork session knows that it's called breathwork because it's work. It takes effort. It, there's a lot, at least in the breathwork that I teach, there's a, there's a lot of, 
you have to override the signals going on in your mind. Your brain will say, this is, this is getting a little uncomfortable. I need to slow down. I need to stop. No, you can keep going. You got this. And as soon as you break through that next level, it's like, oh, okay, there it is. And it's always going to be, let's just get closer and closer. And then uh, there's that resistance Then boom, you're through. And once you're through, you're good. But no matter how good you get, you're always going to need to go that little extra. And that takes time. That's why having a coach is really important because, yes, you can do it on your own, but it's also easier with guidance or with a community. So we learn how to breathe and we learn how to take all the stress that's going on in the world and just push it away for a moment to get back to the core of who am I? What am I doing and why am I doing it? And when we're realigned with our why and our purpose and who we are then everything else falls into place. And then we have this serene sense of calm of, okay, those things that were, were bothering me before, they don't actually matter. I made those up. They were just problems in my head. So we push them off to the side. We get clarity on everything. And now we have more space to make better decisions throughout the day. So when we start our day with that process, then when you get out over a shot, if you just hit a bad shot, who cares? It's not the end of the world. I know who I am. I know my why. I know why I'm here. I know what I'm capable of. It was just a bad shot. But for people who don't have the breathwork component in their routines or in their life, that bad shot, like you said earlier, is a blow to their ego. It's, I suck. I should quit this game. Why do I do this? I'm wasting my time. Why am I taking lessons? I don't want to play anymore. And it's this negative spiral that the only way to break out of that spiral is Either you get lucky and you hit a good shot and that gets you back on track, or you just learn how to separate yourself from it. And the best players in the world, when they're going through a round, they're a completely different person. They're separated from it. It's like they're watching themselves play golf. They, what's the old saying? Uh, we don't rise to the level of the occasion. We default to the level of our training, right? Whatever we've worked on, outside of the round is how we will perform during the round. And so long answer aside is it's, it's not necessarily, hey, here's this one quick tip that you can apply in the middle of your round. It's what are you doing in between your round? What are you doing in between your training and your practice that's complementing it? Because again, it's not just golf. We're talking about the game of life. We're talking about being a better person. We're talking about taking care of yourself physically, spiritually, emotionally, like everything else that goes into it. And it's those players who are not distracted by, oh man, I forgot I still got to do this thing for work or what am I going to pick up for dinner? And oh my God, I forgot I got to pick up little Susie from school. Like when those things are going through your mind, as you know, if you're out in, in a wildfire and you're getting ready to cut a tree down and then you're distracted and then you lose your place and you're like overwhelmed, it's like, it can become dangerous, especially in, in your field. Now golf, we're lucky, it's just a bad day, but we have to look at the perspective. Right? It's a perspective. We're having fun. We're playing a game. We're not working. Don't worry about those things. But most people don't have the skill set to take those problems that they have to solve and say, look, I'll deal with you later. Right now, I'm here. And the only way to learn how to do that is to train that. Absolutely. And, and you know, something I think for the wildland fire community is, is sometimes, you know, inside the community, it's like, you know, yeah, we're badass, we're firefighters, but we're just firefighters. And I've heard that term, we're just firefighters a lot. And I think I really hope the culture changes into like, no, we're actually super athletes. Like if you start looking at what we're putting our bodies through out from the fire line, it's 
it's beyond ultra marathon runners. It's like ultra endurance. It is by far one of the craziest environments you can put your body through as far as peak performance and athleticism. You know, we train so hard and, and, um, I think a lot of people don't realize that like, no, if you're a wildland firefighter, especially if you're on the hotshot cruise, like you are beyond like human capacity. You're actually on the fringe science of, we don't really know how this is affecting your body because this is so hardcore. And so it's so important. Like you're saying, what are we doing outside of the game? And, you know, our game is like unpredictable. We don't know what's, when it's going to happen, how it's going to happen, but we go to the game for six months and then it snows. Right. And so it's like, we got to be ready. We got to be able to switch that stuff on. So that's why the breath work that all the stuff that we're talking about here, all that preparation throughout the winter, all the self care we're talking about. It's so important because it's, it's like, just like your team up to the ball. It's like, it's, it's time to work now. It's time to play the game. And if your head's not in the game, like you're saying, I've been there. I've had days where I'm out there cutting trees and it's big, nasty day on the fire. It's just like, you know what? I got to put the sod down. I'm, I cannot cut right now. Like something's going on back home where there's stress. Like there's so many human factors to golf and to, to wildland fire environments. Like even if there's bad stuff in your life, you're not going to perform. You're not going to come close to what's going on in the field or in the, in the golf. Right. No, absolutely. And you make a really good point. Just a little aside here. Some of the people in your community, they may have heard of David Goggins, the Navy SEAL. Um, he has, you know, a great book and a great social media following. But anyway, when he was growing up, he was he was overcoming a lot of adversity and he wanted to see how big of a badass can I become? So he becomes a Navy SEAL. And once he was a Navy SEAL, he's like, this isn't enough. I want to try to become an Army Ranger. And he went through that process. And he's like, this is not enough. So he became an endurance athlete, did ultra marathons, ran 100 mile you know, races, 200 mile races. And now he's at the point where he's like, that's not enough. He became a wildland firefighter because he's like, this is the ultimate. This is the peak to your point of how can I put myself in a realm that is superhuman above and beyond what people expect is capable out of a person? He said, that's it. I'm going to go do that because that is one of the hardest demanding things physically, emotionally, spiritually that anybody can possibly do. Absolutely. And, and I'm, I'm waiting and so curious on like what David Gomez is going to come out. Cause you know, he's here in Montana at the jump base this summer. And it's just like, Oh man, what I, I hope he writes a book about it because I do think, with him highlighting of like, look, the physical challenges, the mental, the emotional, the spiritual challenges that are, that go into being a wildland firefighter, it makes you, it makes you freaking strong. And, and uh, mentally, emotionally, it's so taxing. And we've really got to take that time to focus on, on the health and well-being of, of ourselves, you know, in the wintertime, in the off season, in, um, in between fire assignments. It's so important. That's why, you know, a lot of my clients, the first thing I do is like, Hey, what's your recovery plan? You know, what is your recovery plan for off season? What's your recovery plan between fire assignments? Like to me, you should be going to the chiropractor, the massage, the acupuncture or whatever, the float tanks, the, you know, magnesium, we could go on forever on the actual specific recovery plan. But I'm curious on, do you do that with your, with your uh, athletes? Do you have a recovery plan for them? Yeah, absolutely. So there's there's a couple uh, different kind of parallels there. The one is the mobility side. Okay, so the mobility side is is more or less of a constant. 
where we're always doing a, a, what I call my power warm up every morning within an hour of waking up as part of your morning routine. They do it again before they practice or play, even if they've already done it in the morning and they'll do it again throughout the day if they need to from a long day of like sitting at the office and things like that. So that's kind of a preparation. Now afterwards, as part of the recovery, we want to have a proper cool down. Your body's warm. You've just been rotating a lot. You've been putting a lot of stress on your body, particularly if you don't have good range of motion. It can really tear up your back and your shoulders and your knees and things like that. So when we're done with a round, one of the things I like to do is I have my players carry a little notebook similar to this one in their golf bag, and they'll just kind of go through a debriefing. How did I play today? What were, where were my good shots? What can I learn from? And they'll just, they'll just take a page and they write it down. And by the end of the year, the book is full and they, they really, you know, can take things away. Cause like we were talking about earlier, golf is a game that is near constant failure. So what are the positives that we can pull out of that round? We don't ever want to look back on a round at all the shots that we missed. It'd be overwhelming. We're going to get frustrated. This game's not going to be fun. But if we look back on the round and say, you know what? I hung in there. It was a rough day. And I had these couple of good shots. That's what you're going to take away because that's what keeps you going. Now, as far as, you know, supplemental recovery, I'm a big proponent of things like cold showers. I like a cold shower in the morning. Uh, is starting off with a hot shower, then going to cold to finish. And then in the evenings, I like hot Epsom salt baths for as long as you can tolerate it, sweating profusely if you can, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes, followed by a cold shower. And that's a really great way to get the magnesium to lock into your body to get you to tense up and it actually promotes better sleep as well. Sleep in its own right is a huge part of it. If you're not getting good sleep, you're not going to be at peak performance no matter what. Your body will eventually just shut down. Consistency is huge in that regard. Wake up at the same time. Go to bed at the same time. Make sure that you're staying hydrated. Make sure you're eating a diet that's balanced and giving you the nutrients that you need to perform. Because I'm a big believer, if we look at a hierarchy, the baseline, the very foundation is the mindset proponent, but just above that is the wellness proponent, the nutrition, the, the diet, the recovery, you know, the, the hydration. And then we look at mobility on top of that, fitness on top of that. And then at the very top is our very specific area, which in my world is golf, but this applies to anything. And so we can take that same hierarchy. Everybody has basically the same mindset needs. There's a little bit of individualism when it comes into the wellness needs. As we get into mobility, maybe you do specific mobility things for your world, whether you're a wildland firefighter, whether you're a golfer, whether you're a boxer, whether you're a parent, whether you're an office worker, that gets a little bit more specific. The fitness component gets even more specific. Are you training to be an NFL player? Are you training to be a PGA Tour player? Are you training just to survive the work desk in the office life? Are you training to carry a saw and your gear around all day wearing hot clothing like you need? to specifically train the fitness for whatever you're trying in the very top is that's your reason why that's what we're doing mine is golf yours is wildland firefighting other people do other things but the broader you go down the bottom of that base the more universal it is to all of us and then the higher you go up that pyramid the more specific it becomes but that's why there's so much overlap between what you do and what i do is because we're talking about the base we're talking about how to take care of ourselves physically spiritually emotionally you know if we don't do that, I could give you the best mobility program in the world. I could give you all the drills in the world to fix your slice and help you hit the ball farther. Your body won't let you. It'll shut you down. It'll say, nope, not today. You're, at, you're down for the count. You haven't been taking care of yourself. You're burnt out. Done. Right? And that's the thing that we need to overcome, especially in your world. You can't. Oh, my God. If that happens when you're out in, in the middle of a fire, it's dangerous. It's life-threatening. And luckily, I'm not quite in that kind of danger. But uh, it does feel like it sometimes. But 
but exactly, we, we have to take care of ourselves. And I know, you know, there's always this sense of I can do more, but it's not about doing more. It's about doing better. What are the things that you need to double down on and really take care of yourself? To your point, you know, so many people, I'm sure you've heard this, this saying before, if you don't have 10 minutes to meditate, you need two hours. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's just yeah. you got to find the time. Absolutely, man. And, and uh, gosh, you know, the hardest thing about the wildland fire environment is we don't get the sleep. We don't get the proper nutrition. We don't get the um, those are the two big ones that we don't get. You know, we're we're force fed candy and crappy sandwiches and the fire lunches are actually astronomically awful. I mean, I would rather eat MRE as a nutritionist all day long. They're like 100 times better than, than the, the fire food that we get. And the sleep, like you said, if we're not sleeping well, it's getting better. Since my career started 14 years ago, it's getting better. They're getting like, I would say eight hours is more common than it was five, seven years ago, but it's still like, and most people are running on six hours of sleep out there. So that peak performance is so much harder to get to. It's such a grind. So it's so, it just proves how important is that, you know, wellness component, that holistic wellness. Um, it's, it's mind blowing how much, if you just take the time to you know, be mindful to maybe journal at night to actually take care of your body with the right liquids, the right food, the right supplements, you know, um, all those things really add on to um, add to the athlete. And I'm curious on like what you do with your golfers as far, as far as nutrition and things like that. So I am not a certified nutritionist. So I tell everybody I'm never going to tell you what to eat. However, I will present the science to you and let you make a decision based on your own right, because everybody has some specific needs. Um, that being said, I think the easiest way to understand nutrition is to look at it through this lens. There are three priorities when choosing which foods to eat. And for, I'd say the vast majority of people, we have these priorities mixed up. Let's go with how most, I'll say Americans look at nutrition. How much does it cost? How does it taste? How does it make me feel? Those are our three priorities. No matter how we want to break it up are those three. And because we are a country of, you know, pleasures and everything like that, sometimes we switch it up. How does it taste? Could be number one. We splurge on a big meal and, uh, and then it's, okay, well, what's the price and how does it make us feel? But there's a fundamental flaw here because food should always in my belief, and the research backs this up, be looked at as number one top priority is how does it make me feel? That's number one. So in the, in the Western diet, the American diet, we look at what's affordable, how does it taste, and then it ends up making us feel like garbage because it's low quality ingredients, it's calorically dense, but nutritionally void, and it makes us sick. But if we start looking at how does it make us feel as the number one priority and then allow taste and cost to flip back and forth depending on the economics for us, now we're going to start to feel better. Now within that feeling priority, the easiest way to understand it is it's not just what you eat. That is super important, don't get me wrong. What you eat is incredibly important, but almost more important than what you eat is what the foods you're eating ate. 
Okay. Now there's a lot of black and white. You know, we hear all the time, red meat is good for you. Red meat is bad for you. Eggs are good for you. No, the eggs cause high cholesterol. You should avoid them. Dairy is good. Dairy is bad. You know, there's certain foods that walk that fine line. The research is all over the place. Things like coffee and bread. And I mean, you name it, right? Here's the problem. Most of the research telling you not to eat those things were based on science in research where those foods came from really bad sources. The studies that say don't eat red meat were using industrial raised commercial feedlot cows as their research. If you eat a sick animal, you will get sick. But if you eat a pasture raised, grass fed, grass finished, all organic cow, which was beautifully healthy living out in your neighbor's yard, you will get healthy. Okay, so it's not just what you eat, but how quality was the thing you were eating. Same thing with fruits and vegetables. We look at the uh, the RDA, the recommended daily allowance. You look at you look up. Okay, well, what's the RDA? You know what what vitamins and minerals are in broccoli, for example. Ah, oh, there's magnesium and there's vitamins A. Okay, and like the list goes on, right? Well, that information was looked back in, I believe it was around the 50s, looking at uh, industrial uh, uh, foods, which were grown in, in different soil than we have now. So the RDAs we look at were actually 50, 60 years ago. Since then, our soil is depleted. Those vitamins and minerals aren't present in our soil anymore. So the broccoli you're eating doesn't actually have those nutrients in it. And on top of it, because of GMO farming and all these pesticides that we're laying, not only are we not getting the nutrition, but we're also adding pesticides and chemicals, which are toxic to our body. And now our body has to fight to remove toxicity just to be able to heal itself and move forward. So a simple switch of something like organic can make a very big difference just from removing the toxic substances alone but then we add on top of it the fact that the nutrition is more present than it wasn't. And even then, we might need to supplement to make up for the nutrition that we're not able to consume. So that's kind of a long-winded spiel, but the three priorities should be how does it make me feel? And then we can flip-flop how much does it cost and how does it taste? And then within those foods that we're choosing, we're choosing the highest quality that we can, because when you put good in, you get good out. Oh, I love that, Blaine. Yeah, so true. The organic, the um, the supplements and, and the soil depletion. You know, I think that's something that people don't really understand very well is that the soils, they don't support human beings very well anymore. It's just what it is right now. And we can change that, but it's going to take a big industrial effort to change that. And that's why... You know, I'm a firm believer in supplements. I, I started taking supplements a couple of years ago and just it changed my world. Um, and so I think we're bumping time here pretty, pretty close. And I just want to say thank you so much, Blaine, for coming on. It's been an amazing show. Um, I really want to get you back to talk about mobility and kind of help help the firefighters get get mobility back. You know, low back, mid back. It's a big thing for us, too. Um, and so that would be an amazing show and, um, hopefully we can, you know, do some, do some collaboration and, and keep this going. Cause this is awesome. Absolutely. I'm always excited to come on to your show here, Thomas, and we'll make that happen for sure. Awesome. All right, brother. We'll, uh, talk to you soon and for everybody listening and watching, thank you so much for tuning in and, um, yeah, we'll see you on the next one. All right. All right. Thanks so much, Thomas. We'll see you guys. Yeah. All right.